you have your Bible, you can grab it and pull it out to John, uh, open it up to John chapter uh, 5, beginning at verse 1, which we just read. Um, here we continue week 11, believe it or not, in the Gospel of John, and we are uh, moving through to tell the story of Jesus' ministry from the, from the standpoint of John, and here at the uh, pool of Bethesda, uh, Jesus heals a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Um, And so as you turn there, John chapter 5, verse 1, I want to tell you uh, a little bit of a story about myself and experience that I had. So I, when I was 18 years old, I discovered this band that probably a very few of you know about called August Burns Red. It's a metal band, okay? And I was hooked. I thought it was the most incredible thing I'd ever heard in my life. I'd never heard such an orchestrated cacophony of screaming and guitars and drums and heavy stuff, and I was, I would, I would go ham sandwich listening to this stuff. I mean, I was just turned up listening to this. I loved it. They were coming to town. They went to Scully's Music Diner in Columbus, Ohio. This is a place that fits legally probably about 450 people, and there were probably 800 people in there. I mean, it was just crammed, okay? So we go in there. I'm 18, and uh, I am chest to back with, I mean, it is wall-to-wall human beings, man flesh, just sweating, it is, and we're going nuts. Like this band comes on and they actually gather around to pray. It was a pretty cool spiritual moment actually. They were Christian, but the bands before them were not. And so it was kind of a split crowd and uh, they started praying and it was just, it was electric. It was incredible. And for like two hours, we didn't stop moving, screaming, jumping up and down. We had the best time of our life. I left, I was drenched. Uh, It was nice and cool outside, which was great. I had a blast, okay? Fast forward a couple days, sitting in church. We sing some songs about how this benevolent, infinite God saves us from all our sins and is going to redeem the whole world and, uh, and how this is available to each one of us and that he loves us personally, right? And we sit there and I'm just kind of unimpressed. Just kind of unimpressed. Juxtaposing those two in my mind. So I went home. Similar thing happened kind of in a microcosm and I spent hours hours playing a video game where on repeat my little man would spawn in this little map and I would try to search out enemies and eliminate them and then they would kill me and I would respawn and I would do it again and I'd get mad because I lost and then I'd do it again for hours and then it's like okay time to go to bed and I Went to my bedroom and probably had enough energy and attention to pray for something like five minutes to thank God for the things in my life and then went, went to bed. Had a hard time focusing even on that, right? I'm just tired, don't really want to pray. Okay, so what is that? Like, what is that thing in my life, in our lives, where we struggle with giving time and attention to things that matter most and having a passion and a zeal for the things that really are most significant in the world and in our lives, but we have no problem giving our attention, our zeal, our affection to things that are far less significant. And maybe even good, but at the expense of what's best. What is that? Um, I've done a dive this week into this topic because I think that we see it in our, in our passage here today. Um, I, I think the causes are numerous, but the, the malady is something I would call apathy. Apathy. Um, Not only I, but most Christians throughout all time, 
So if you've got any point of your life, part of your life where you have apathy, you're in good company because most Christians throughout all of time have dealt with this problem of apathy. And uh, we have writings of church fathers on this. We have people who have talked about this struggle with like they want to desire God more. What is that? It's apathy. And uh, we care. It's not just that we don't care about anything as if there's this constant depression. It's that we don't care enough about the right things and that we care too much about some things that are insignificant. So today we are going to answer three questions. We're going to ask, what is apathy? Like, what is that? Number two, how does God cure apathy? How does God cure apathy in us? And then number three, how do we avoid remaining in apathy? So what is it? How does God cure it? And how do we avoid remaining in it? Does that make sense? All right, let's go. Let's do it. So first, look at your, um, what is apathy? We got to look at our story. In verse one, uh, we, have, we have Jesus coming to this scene. Let me pull up my text. And uh, in this scene, the man, uh, Jesus is coming during a feast of the Jews. And we don't know which feast this is in particular. Um, some people have said it's the Sabbath. It's not clear. But it's a feast of the Jews. And Jesus goes up to the uh, city. And when he's in the city, it's going to be packed. It's going to be a lot of people, more than normal. And there's this pool. We have an image here I want to show you. Uh, first of a map of the uh, city. There's a pool called Bethesda where uh, people would come and they would lay. Um, and there's this, uh, this belief uh, there at the time, and perhaps this was true, that once a year, an angel from God would stir up these waters and they would have healing powers. And the first person to go into the water would be healed. Right? Uh, and this was not like, <clears throat> you know, if you've ever been to a Hilton or you've ever been to like a really nice spa or like an out, out you know, resort or whatever. Um, this is a... Uh, it, it says literally there's a crowd. So look what it says in verse 2. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, the, just north of the temple, in Aramaic called Bethesda, this pool which has five roofed colonnades. Here's what the colonnades look like. We actually have the, they've, they've excavated this. Um, it's a, these are stone archways that go around. Um, it's kind of cavernous. It's going to be wet. It's going to be, well, at this time of year, if, depending on what, what feast it is, it could have been really hot. It could have been cold. It was probably not comfortable. Um, and in this laid, it says in verse 3, look what it says in verse 3, a multitude of invalids, a multitude. Uh, but now at feast time, this was probably extra cr uh, cramped and not a great place. So Jesus goes there. What's Jesus doing there? I have no idea. Um, he probably is walking by it on his way to the temple. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He sees this man who can't walk, and John gives us this detail that he hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. Is he 38 years old? Is he 60 years old and he had an accident? We don't know. But it's been a lifetime. It's been, it's been half a lifetime that he hasn't been able to walk. And it's important that we have this detail that it's 38 years. It's not like I've been sick for a couple months. This is a very, very long time. This is his norm. This is what he knows. This is his everyday life. And Jesus sees him. And this is really important. Look what it is in verse 6. It says, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. I love this. Jesus knew his story. Jesus saw him and knew where he was, just like he sees us, and said to him, this is the question, do you want to be healed? The word there is, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? 
Well, what's the response the man gives? He says, I have no one, or literally it says, I have no man, uh, nor, no person, to take me into the pool when the water is stirred up. So there, that's, that's what I was telling you about, that there's this idea that it's stirred up, and you have to be the first one in. And here's a man who can't walk, so it's crowded. He's probably not right next to the pool. Um, he probably got crowded out by people who can walk, right? And he's not going to be able to step down in the, in, through the steps into the water first. And as he's going, someone beats him. How long has he been trying to do this? 38 years? Maybe he learned about the pool 20 years ago. Maybe he's from somewhere else. A long time. But instead of answering with a yes or with a no, he answers with um, what I would call an excuse or, or a reason why this hasn't happened yet and why it probably won't happen. Now, in every passage of Scripture, there's multiple layers of meaning multiple layers of application, multiple layers of significance, okay? It's not just like, bop, here's what this one thing means from this one passage. There's so much going on. So like the bare historical meaning here is that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, right? And it creates conflict with the Jews and in the midst of the narrative, like this is what's happening. And he's making an argument that he's God. There's the theological point um, that Jesus is this messianic healer who is equal with God, Right? There's a symbolic point that a lot of the church fathers draw a parallel between this and baptism, which we could have gone there today. It took a lot in me not to go that direction. But there's also this moral dimension, and there's what, what one guy called Craig Barnes calls the subtext. The subtext. So there's the text of Scripture, and then there's the subtext. And uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, where uh, if I say, hey, you're standing on my foot, the subtext is, get off my foot. Right? Um, hey, there's smoke coming out of your... Um, uh, second story uh, window, the subtext is you should go check that out, right? Well, there's something wrong, okay? Uh, in Scripture, we've taught on a couple of stories. There's one story where Jesus heals a woman. He's in the synagogue at the center of the, of, of the room. Everyone's listening to him teach, and he sees on the edge of the room a woman who, who's bent. He calls her to the middle of the room in front of everybody, and then heals her. She stands upright for the first time in front of everybody. The text is Jesus heals a woman who has a bent back. The subtext is Jesus takes away her shame and gives her honor. You see? There's, there's another layer there to what's going on in our lives. Like We have things that happen in our lives that we do that's like the text of it, but like if we have the, the attention and the uh, patience to think about it and to reflect, which takes not being distracted, by the way, and to be bored a little bit, to reflect on our lives. There's a subtext that's going on all, all the time. And in stories, especially in, in Scripture that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, there's a subtext. So we have here a man laying by a pool, unable to walk, looking to be healed for 38 years. Why would John tell us 38 years? And why would this man's response to do you want to be whole be a reason why he's not whole rather than an unqualified, unmitigated yes? I think the question is, or the answer is, this man was stricken with apathy. And this man was dealing with some despair, some apathy. Let me explain. A recent um, author named Uche Anazor, this one like book of the year from Christianity Today, I think last year, um, he, did, he, he 
goes into the, the, the spiritual uh, realm of this, the psychological aspects and how it's different from depression, how it's different from other sorts of just seasons of, of discouragement. Like, what is apathy? And here's his definition. Apathy is a psychological and spiritual sickness in which we experience a prolonged dampening of motivation, effort, and emotion, as well as a resistance to the things that would bring flourishing in ourselves and others. It is a sin that expresses itself as restlessness, aimlessness, laziness, and joylessness towards the things of God. So, has that ever described you? My guess is, although we have a lot of visitors, I don't want to assume this about all of you, but my guess is for people who are regularly attending church, people who are regularly coming here, like you want to want God. You, like you want to be a good spouse, a good friend, a good parent, a good child. Like you, you want to obey Jesus Christ, but isn't it true that you experience seasons of, of sort of aimlessness and a lack of passion and a lack of care for the things that matter most to you? Like you know they matter most, but yet the body's not following the mind. What do we do about that? Um, and what causes that? Well, Anazor gives, he calls them the seven deadly causes of, of uh, uh, apathy. I'm just going to highlight a few that I think sometimes strike us uh, most commonly. So one, doubt. Doubt. We live in an age of skepticism. We live in an age where everything has to be uh, analyzed. Um, we live in an age where um, really how do you know what you know? Like the, the, the philosophical question of how we know has been eroded to where you might be even told you can't really ever know for sure anything. Like if that's the air we're breathing, if that's the water we're drinking, then when we come to things of faith, it's like, well, I can't really know that God's there. I can't really know that he's gonna heal me. I can't really know that he's gonna intervene. And so it slips us into this fatalism that's like whatever will happen will happen. And if everything's fatalistic, if everything's just, just going to happen and there's nothing that can happen that I can do about that and that God's gonna do about that, then why be, why be concerned? Do you see that? See how doubt can kind of spiral into this fatalism where we step back and um, there's this, this good quote. He says, uh, a world lacking in meaning. If you don't see meaning in your life, you doubt that there's any sort of higher ordering principle to your life. A world uh, lacking in meaning is a world for which it's really difficult to get up in the morning. Right? I think our brother by the pool of Bethesda doubted that he could be healed. I think he doubted that there was going to be any future significance or meaning in his life. But what's another, another cause? Maybe grief. What about grief? I've dealt with this. In times of grief, it can be very natural to lack the motivation to do the things that you would normally do. And it can come in cycles. It can come in waves. And do you think this man with 38 years, a lifetime of handicap, do you think he was dealing with some grief? Maybe he, maybe he wasn't born this way. Maybe he lost a life that he longed for and hoped for a different future and it's not coming, you would grieve that. And that would never really go away. And so there would be some apathy that comes in. And sometimes it's really less complicated. Sometimes it's just a lack of discipline. Sometimes we just find ourselves, uh, we're giving ourselves over to habits and to, to patterns of thinking that lead us towards apathy. We start giving our, our, our care and our time and our attention and our bodies over to activities that are insignificant and frivolous, and they start to call for our attention. Um, it's easier. 
It's way easier to watch a movie than to read a dense book. It's way easier to just stay on your couch than to go work out, right? It's easier to do things that are like in the moment more comfortable. The reason cheap entertainment is so addictive is because it's easy. You aren't addicted to any, well, most of us are not addicted to anything that's really hard to do. Like there's some people who compulsively go out and run 12, 12 miles. I don't understand that, but some people do. The rest of us find it really easy to do easy things all the time, right? And that's what distraction is. That's what happens in our hearts too, not just physically, but in our hearts. And so we find ourselves drawn towards things that are easier in our cheap entertainment and they kind of scratch where we itch already rather than when we go to the Lord, it's actually asking something of us. We're called to die. And that's hard. And it takes effort and it takes attention. And everything around us is making it really easy not to do that. So we have to give ourselves, but if we don't, think about this, nine hours a day on a screen in entertainment, not really thinking or talking about the things of God over and over and over again, what's that math equation work out to? A lack of desire for anything spiritual because we're not feeding that beast, we're feeding a different one. So when Jesus offers us life, he says, do you want to be made whole? Like, what's the area in your life or areas in your life where you're experiencing apathy? You know, it's, you, you know it's not what you want. You know it's not what God wants. You know you should do something about it, but you just can't seem to muster up the oomph to do anything about it. We all have that. And so, what do we do about it? What's the answer? Number one, God's answer is to provide the cure for apathy. The cure for apathy is the life-changing news that Jesus is working just like the Father. So you are not alone when you are laying by the pool. God has not forgotten that you're laying by the pool and can't walk. You, feel, you, you, hear, you hear what I'm saying? You are not forgotten in that situation. And neither am I. And... Not only does God know about it, it says Jesus already knows his story, but Jesus is able to do something about it. Father Brian Poppy, who was, who was a pastor here, used to say that God is, um, he's aware, he cares, and he's competent to do something about the situation. What if in the very area of your life where you didn't think you could walk, the very area of your life where you're facing the greatest shame and disappointment, the very area of your life where you struggle with this desire to even do anything about it, what if Jesus is intimately aware of every factor and every detail in that situation, still loves you and then wants to do something about it for you? He's utterly unfrustrated with you. Think about that. He's not frustrated with you. Your apathy doesn't deter him. It's actually an opportunity to see him. That's different, right? And he is powerful to do something in that situation. He is poised to intervene. And so, do you want to be whole? That's, that, Jesus, when you're reading scripture, like he's asking the man, but he's asking you, do you want to be well? And, and here, here's what we have to say. He's asking you now, today, if you want to be whole in that area of your life, what is your answer? If you want to be made whole, cry out to him. Tell him, yes, you want to be whole. Tell him that you want to be changed. Invite him to work miraculously in your heart and your mind so that you can give yourself over to the right thing. 
Just like the man at the pool, he says to you, rise, take up your mat, and walk. See, now that Christ has come, the man can no longer say, this is what's beautiful about the situation. This is the irony, and this is what John does in his gospel. The man shows up who can take him to healing, and he says to the man, Jesus, I have no man to take me to the water. Think about the irony of that situation. Jesus says, he's here, baby. Just like he said to the woman at the well, I'm he. He doesn't even answer, oh, well, let me just get you up, and I'm going to take you into the water, and get, you, get your feet in, wait for that little swirl. Nope. Rise. The water doesn't matter anymore. It's my word, just like we talked about last week. And so, just like that for you, the one who can carry you to the waters of healing is here. You can no longer say, I have no one to help me. You have someone to help you. I'm here to tell you, you have someone to help you. And he cares and he knows he can do something about it. But you have to respond and say, yes, I want to be made whole. So tell him that today. John Chrysostom says this, just as the rays of the sun shine forth each day and are not diminished, and just as the light is not lessened from its great abundance, the activity of the spirit is in no way exhausted by the multitude of those use it. See, the man who was healed didn't use up all of God's power as if no one else could be healed. Every single person in this room can receive an equal amount of God's grace and healing. Like, you don't diminish that. The Savior is everything for everyone, everywhere. He's bread for the hungry. He's water for the thirsty. He's resurrection for the dead. He's a physician for the sick. He's redemption for the sinner. So rise. So rise. So, we all deal with apathy. The solution, the healing for apathy is the word of God, the word of Jesus Christ who says rise, and for us to call out to him and ask for that rescue. But then what? How do we avoid from coming back into apathy? The second part then is to walk, because he says to the man, rise, pick up your mat, and, and what? Walk. Okay, bold thing to say to a man who hasn't walked for a long time. So he tells him that anyway. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, by the way. He says that we are saved by grace through faith, and this not of ourselves. He says, ironically, that when we walked in sin, we were dead. So dead people walk all over the world today. It's not just the sixth sense, the movie. It's also in real life. Spiritually dead are walking all over the place. All over, in your neighborhood, at your work, maybe even in your home. The spiritually dead are walking. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. So he raises us from the dead. He gives us new life. When we call out to him and we say, yes, I want to be saved. Yes, I want to be healed. Yes, I want to get up and be made whole. He raises us up and it says he does this by his own grace. You don't accomplish it. You don't earn it. It's out of his mercy and his kindness. Then it says in verse 10 of that same passage, we are his workmanship. So he's recreated us in Christ Jesus. It says for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now that you've been raised, Romans 6 says this, about baptism, by the way, says, you were buried, therefore, uh, through baptism into death, so that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, you too might walk in newness of life. So the baptism moment of being brought from death to life is actually the, the, it's being born. 
And then you learn to walk for the rest of your life. So we must walk in this faith. Um, Dallas Willard says it like this. Uh, it's, it's kind of a longer quote, but it's really good. We can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life he chose for himself. This is, uh, this is brilliant. This is like so common sense and like, duh, but think about this. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. Think about that. Jesus was who he said he was, and he can save me from my sin, but I'm definitely not going to imitate the fact that he gave away things and that he didn't have a home, and he, didn't, and, he, and he was always talking about the kingdom of God, and he wasn't retaliating. He didn't hold grudges, that he loved the least, that he loved, like, all these things about his life, we, we are like, it's not just the cross and the resurrection. Everything he did was because he knew how to live rightly. Like, he actually knew how to live a human life that was flourishing, and so we imitate all of that, all of his habits, his, his times of solitude, his prayer, his immersion in the scripture, his community and fellowship, his giving away and, and abdicating earthly possessions. All these kinds of things, this way of life. Sorry, I'm preaching a different sermon. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in. By arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain constantly at home. This is beautiful. Constantly at home in the fellowship of his father. So those habits are habits of being at home with the heavenly father. See, there's, what, what Willard is getting at is a life that is ordered by habits which actually train the soul. So we actually learn to walk after we've been made new and been brought to life. And he, he, he qualifies this by saying it's through faith and grace because there's two extremes to avoid, avoid here as we've talked about all this. And, and both the rise and the walk when isolated are not the full gospel. Okay, and there are traditions that there, there, are, there are, there's ways to preach this that are not right where we separate those as if they don't go together. And the, the, the classic reformed Christian way of talking about this is you are made new by grace and then you obey and you walk in, in, in newness of life. So um, the two extremes, on the one side, it can be tempting to think that this one moment of divine work is going to solve all our problems. So you have apathy in this, this area in your life. You call out to God. All right, took the pill. I'm good. Like I've got the vaccine for apathy. Great. Right? Got, got the cure for apathy. And then you just keep living your life the same way. Still just like watch TV all the time and ne like, don't take care of my spiritual life, never giving myself over to spiritual habits. Like, what's gonna happen? What if the man had gotten up, taken his mat, walked down the street one mile, sat down and never gotten back up again? Never walked again. What happens to his legs? They atrophy. He, learned, he, he, he forgets how to walk. He loses all sense of balance. He can't walk anymore, can he? We have to continue walking and living out that which Christ has given us. In our lives... God can intervene miraculously, but then, and he does intervene miraculously all the time, but then he empowers us in the context of the fellowship of the church to walk in this new life he has given us. We have been baptized into his death and raised into his life, therefore we must walk in newness of life. But on this other side, and this is where we can also struggle, especially in an achievement culture, hello, um, we think that it's all about the walking. 
And that like, I'm laying on the ground and it's like, God, thank you for wanting to heal me. Got it. And you start struggling up, start doing your thing, trying to stand up, fall down. It's all right, God, I'm just gonna work harder. Thanks, like you're, you're with me as I do this. But I don't need to admit that I need you. I can do it so that when I stand up, I can say, I stood up. That's not your job. By the way, you can't stand up. And the good news is he makes you stand up, and that's okay. In fact, that's better. Then, having stood up, he empowers you and holds you and and energizes you to then walk in this new life. It's all of grace, yet we cooperate with him. So in conclusion, apathy strikes at all of us. We're all lacking in passion and in care for the kinds of things that we know that we need to care most about. Jesus died and he rose again to give us new life and to call us to rise up and to walk. All we have to do is call out to him and say, yes, I want to be made whole and then walk in that new life. So where have you surrendered to apathy instead of Jesus? Like, where do you know this is not okay and I'm, something has to happen about it and I need to call out to God for it? Do that. Call out to him. And then don't stop there. Tell a friend. Tell, tell someone in your Mesa group. Tell someone. Tell me. Tell anyone on staff. Get in relationship and start training the habits of walking, of reading the scriptures, of praying, of spending time alone with Jesus without stuff in your face that has to be plugged into work. Today, hear his call and rise up. Hear his call to walk in newness of life. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.